When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Margaret Cho. Listen to me on the Hollywood Raw podcast, where I talk all about being backstage, behind the scenes, on Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Hey everybody, it's Tony Robbins. Hey guys, I'm Audrina Patrick. Hey, this is Adam Carolla. You're on the Hollywood Raw podcast. You're watching Hollywood Raw. You're listening to and watching Hollywood Raw. This is the Hollywood Raw podcast, hosted by entertainment veteran Dax Holt and street journalist Adam Glynn. The podcast humanizing Hollywood, from celebrities to media moguls, even paparazzi and bodyguards have come to break news, break their silence, or just have a great conversation on Hollywood Raw. If they're on Hollywood Raw, there's a reason. From Page Six to TMZ, Daily Mail, and People Magazine, everyone is talking about the Hollywood Raw podcast with Dax Holt and Adam Glenn. So, Margaret, thank you for doing the Hollywood Raw podcast. Uh, you, you, I have to say, are a comedy veteran. You're a comedy legend. You've done it cool. all in the industry. I mean, you've, you've done... I mean, literally, you've done it all from numerous amount of specials to books to opening up, working with some of the biggest people out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm curious as a comic, when you first started out, who was like the big name comedian that kind of took you under their wing? Did you have a, someone, a mentor like that? A few people. Um, Rosie O'Donnell was one. Very, very supportive. Very important in my development. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, for sure. Without Jerry Seinfeld, I don't know if I would have continued on. You know, he was incredibly uh, generous and helpful, um, helping me get television very early on. And um, just really a developmental sort of like meeting him was a real landmark for me. Um, Bob Hope, I'm old enough to be in the uh, era of Bob Hope and Phyllis Diller. So I was on his his young comedian special in the yeah. early 90s. So. Uh, that was really a big help. Um, I actually watched it at J.J. Uh, Abrams' house. And J.J. Abrams and I would play piano and uh, watch TV. And uh, that was the first thing I remember watching myself on television at J.J. Abrams' house. Of course, I haven't been to J.J.'s for a long time. He's quite busy. <laughs> He's just yeah. making his Star Wars movies and just stuff. Doing just his Star doing Wars his thing. thing. But uh, okay. yeah, it's very cool. So I, I'm not a comedian. You you both are comedians. My question is is comedy a competitive industry or are you championing each other on or are you guys all fighting for the same headlining acts like i'm just curious if there's competition and so there's yes there's people helping you out but is there also people that are kind of like no i want that gig i want to be close to rosie o'donnell i don't think so i think it's such a specialized art form i don't know it's hard because uh you're um sort of not competitive in the same way that actors are competitive mm-hmm. or even like athletes are competitive. It's a very different kind of thing. It is a sport. I think stand-up comedy is definitely, there's a sport aspect to it, but um, I don't feel like the same kind of competition because we're all bringing a specific kind of brand of comedy mm-hmm. to an audience that you would hopefully cultivate. Um, so I don't believe it is. I think yeah, it's what do you competitive think? to like get into the clubs, you know, because mm. there's only if, if you're doing like a showcase night, like in New York City or maybe the improv in L.A., 
you know, there's only about eight spots people could do. Mm-hmm. So everyone wants to get one of those spots. So it's, you know, you're not competitive mm. one certain comedian. It's like, man, I just want to be, I want to get on the lineup. I want to get paid. So it's right. not really, you're fighting for roles as much. It's like you're fighting for spots, but it's not as competitive. Right. It's just, it's, it's a different sort of mindset. It's, it's hard to say competitive is the word. It's like, just kind of give me a spot. Give me a, give me, give me a shot. I know I could do well. It's not like against any certain comedian. Um, you know, mm-hmm. obviously there might be some comedians you think you could deliver more than the other person. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you got to actually open up for Seinfeld. You know, when you open yes. up for Seinfeld, you know, I, you know, Andrew Dice Clay was a fun or like a guy who'd mess with people when you'd open up for him. Like, for mm-hmm. example, right before you take the stage, you'd say, hey, don't make any jokes about women. Don't make any jokes about drinking <laughs> and like kind of screw up your whole like, wait, that's my set. And then you yeah. also say like, hey, make a joke about watermelon tonight or make a joke about you know, crackers or Oreo cookies, something just random. When you mm-hmm. open up for a guy like Seinfeld, did he have any rules to open up for him? Does he want only clean or what was his deal? No, no, nothing like that. Um, but also I think he's incredibly selective of performers that would be opening for him. I mean, I think that um, it, it's it's a pretty specialized gig to get um, to be working with him just because it's, it's very um, prestigious. So I think once you get yeah. through that sort of screening process, ultimately you could do whatever you want. And what's great about Jerry Seinfeld is he's an incredible fan of comedy. So he wants to watch. He wants to watch what's happening. He wants to see what's happening. He's laughing, which is like so what a vote of confidence to see him laughing, which is great. I, I think that's a really it's a proud, proud moment when he, he's laughing at your jokes. So what makes you more nervous getting up and opening for Jerry Seinfeld, who you know is going to watch, or like doing the Arsenio Hall show, like what is more pressure? Because these are huge comedians. They've got massive followings that I'm sure you respect. So you're like, oh, it's got to be nerve wracking. Well, um, definitely nerve wracking opening for Jerry Seinfeld as I was so young. Um, And then Arsenio was interesting because I lived near the studio. And so I was their fill-in guest whenever somebody would, their filming would go over and they had to cancel or something would happen. So I ended up, George Lopez and I were kind of like fill-in comedians that they would put in at the last minute if somebody couldn't make it. And so that was really advantageous because we both ended up doing like 20 plus sets on that show. Um, So that was really great, you know, and then you got used to it. And I really miss Arsenio. So I know that they had a reboot which I also did, but I love that original, the dog pound energy, um, all of the artists that he would have on. It was so fun. So you getting that place next to the studio, was that the best decision you could have made housing wise because it essentially helped rocket launch your career? Absolutely. And it was an interesting apartment complex because every unit was um, a comedian's. So they called it the quote unquote house of cards. And it was like one floor was like Variety X. So it was like the ventriloquists and the jugglers <laughs> and magicians. And then the rest, they were always gone for months subletting because they were on cruise ships. And then the rest of the floors were just basically middles. It was like a, an apartment complex full of middle acts. <laughs> so do people, did people want to move in there just so they could be close to the studio so they could also be filling acts? It was right around the corner from Arby's on Hollywood, near Hollywood Boulevard. So oh, it was on, actually Arby's is on Hollywood Boulevard. So it was by that big cowboy hat. 
So yes. So and actually, right now it's right down the street from Netflix. So I don't think they do a film. Yeah. <laughs> but um certainly it was a it was a great thing i don't know if people actually would have moved there because of like needing to uh be a fill-in guest on arsenio but it was mostly that like comics would give over their lease so you would mm -hmm. never have you had sort of rent control so you would never have a rent spike after uh, you had made a new lease so you would just sign on to another comics lease and take it over That's so awesome. they were able to keep the rent 300 dollars a month which for a, 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 you know, like a little bit bigger than a um, one bedroom. So it was like a one bedroom, a little plus, maybe one bedroom, mm -hmm. like a little bigger than a one bedroom for 300 a month in Hollywood. Pretty incredible. You know, I got to imagine that's like a very crazy phone call because you could be sitting around all day just thinking like, oh, maybe later in the day I'm going to get go for lunch with friends or just maybe try to do a spot at night. And then you get a call like, oh, my God, you need to go on the Arsenio Hall show. You have to go on a late night show that gets huge ratings. Yeah. Is it difficult to like what's the mindset that you get as a comedian or as, as a person like that you're on call at all times? Because there's times where A, you could possibly be cut or B, you get that call and you can't say no to it because it's such an insane opportunity. Like, are mm -hmm. you just feeling are you just always prepared or yeah. how, your mindset? At that time, yeah, because it was four minutes and 50 seconds of material that you could do on television that you always kept at the ready because that would translate to six minutes with laughs, hopefully more. Some, sometimes um, it would be better if you had about like less because then you could just sort of stretch it out. But so you had to have sort of four minutes and something change sets ready. I mean, and it, we don't do that anymore because that sort of like model of uh, late night sets on stand up comedy show, like stand up comedy on late night shows is not as prevalent. Usually you'll sit down and do like kind of a set while you're delivering it to the host uh, sort of in the guise of an interview. But it's actually just jokes. But uh, then it was so important to just keep it ready because there were quite a few late night shows going. And um, so it was just something that you had in the back of your mind, oh, I have to have this ready uh, just in case. And usually you would know because they would film it around 4 to 5 p.m. So you would know probably in the morning whether or not you were going to do it. That's so cool. So Margaret, you've done a lot of big shows, night shows, daytime shows. Who had the best spread backstage or the coolest <laughs> green room that was like you were excited to go hang out at that show, not just to be on the show, but to be backstage? Well, probably um, Arsenio always had the best catering and nobody was eating anything in the 90s because everybody was um, on extreme diets <laughs> and doing Tybo. So uh, everybody uh, would forego the buffet and they always had the best food. Like what? Um, Tell me what was on that spread. Usually they would cater um, food from, sometimes it was House of Blues, which always had really great Cajun sort of Creole cuisine, but also Georgia, which was um, Denzel Washington's restaurant, which uh, was very delicious. Um, it was very upscale, uh, kind of like Southern cuisine that was really... Um, just beautifully prepared. So like kind of fried chicken, but really like elevated, you know, kind of almost molecular gastronomy, like this sort of level of like this great soul food that was so beautifully crafted. So it was that and nobody was eating it. I, I pictured Rosie O'Donnell's backstage being really fun. I don't yeah. know. 
like Ellen, I, like I went back uh, stage with Ellen's for a long time. They had mm -hmm. ping pong going. They had food mm -hmm. galore. It was like a great happening spot backstage. And yeah. I, I feel like Rosie's would have been very similar. Rosie's was great, too, because uh, one time I was doing Rosie's show and I came in the night before and they lost my luggage. So uh, they let me go into the SNL costume bank to get um, clothes. So I just got whatever. I got some like 90s outfit, whatever. But it was like really, really cool to go in there. Um, so, yeah, that's really nice. Um, SNL's is really nice. Uh, it's very uh just beautiful, you know, and and um, David Letterman's uh, back in the day. Dance with the very, stars. Very nice. When you did Dance with the Stars, is that a cool backstage or green room? Do they set it up pretty? Yeah, nice yeah, that's a really nice spread too, and it's also very because um, you're so hungry when, when you're <laughs> dancing. You're just so hungry, and then uh, mask singer is pretty nice, although uh, it's hard to eat with a mask. So, you know, during your career, what was the biggest show in your career? The one that the one that really changed your career where you went from just a comic, just trying to get things going to the one like, oh, I'm actually in the game. I'm in the business like that gave you that credibility where that initially that was your launch. Was it a show at, a, at the improv or something like that? Was it a show in San Fran? Was it a, a, a TV set or was it even a show before you got on TV that someone someone was in the crowd saying, I like what she's doing. She's doing something original. She's fun. She's funny. She's got a voice. I think it was um, it was probably right when I do you remember the Dennis Miller show. That was a talk show. Mm -hmm. Sure. Before, before the one that he's doing now, but um, even before uh, like the HBO one, this was a, like a mainstream talk show. And then he um, I was bombing at the improv really bad at a late night show. And it was actually an audition for his show to do a set. And I was just bombing, but he was in the audience and he was the only one laughing and he was laughing partially because I was bombing. <laughs> it's always really funny when somebody's bombing and uh, also because he thought it was funny. And so uh, that got me the job on the show, which uh, elevated sort of a lot after that, you know, like so getting uh, that was probably my first late night talk show uh, stand up comedy appearance. So, so from then came like letterman and um tonight show and uh all of those other ones which was really incredible that is so cool and when you when you do i guess hit it big and you're on the 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 evening whatever shows how do you get a manager is it like a manager sees you on the show or someone who wants to rep you they see you and then they reach out to you or are you hustling trying to find them i so already had one yeah. before yeah i had one before that um I've had a couple of different managers. I've had some interesting managers. Um, I used to get managed by uh, the same team that managed uh, Michael Jackson. So Whoa. I was part of the entourage backstage when Michael and Lisa Marie got married and uh, were yeah. kissing. No, you were there so for that? I was there for that. I was just in the backstage, and it was so funny to see them come back through and um, – you know, Lisa Marie's actually a friend now. I didn't know her very well then, but I was just part of that very extended um, entourage. So I had management at that point. I think because in the 80s and 90s, stand-up comedy was such a big commodity. You wanted to find that comedian who you were going to develop a TV show around. So they were looking for younger comedians who had a very specific point of view. So I think at that time, it was probably very easy to find management. Uh, where I was and who I was at the time.
So did you get a lot of one-on-one, like any face-to-face time with Michael then, back then? No, no. But, you know, these entourages that would be so huge, you would just, you know, kind of get the benefits of Mm -hmm. kind of just being there. You would never ever meet them necessarily, but you would just sort of be in, have gotten a ride in the sort of train of vehicles that would go to the venue and then gotten the ride back with the same train of vehicles and then also probably stay in the same hotel. I am so fascinated by this because he was such like a, you know, a a mystical person and so famous. Like what kind of entourage, like you say it, but like how many cars did Michael kind of go around with? How many people were in Michael's entourage? Quite a few, quite a crowd of people, you know, whether it was just the management team or it was the junior management, it was the agents, it was also publicists, it was also people from networks, um, you know, all sorts of people just trying, you know, makeup, hair. Uh, like, I, I remember opening for um, Stevie Wonder, and he had such a huge entourage, uh, and then a core entourage of uh, women who were all dressed exactly like him. <laughs> yeah. So there were five women all dressed exactly like S- Stevie Wonder, who were just sort of in a, um, they were sort of his bodyguards, which was really cool. So they were just in a, in a sort of circle, semicircle around him that uh, were helping him. That's so awesome. I love yeah. this. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, who, you know what? You, I'm assuming you write all your own material. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. You do. So when you come out with a new special, that's all you. You're sitting at home. You're writing. That's You don't have help. Maybe you have like a comic friend of you just kind of like, what do you think of this? Or just a friend. Oh, yeah. Oh, I take tags. I'll take, yeah. I take tags like... I will take anybody's tag, you know, like I'm using, I yeah. guess, like I'm using that, you know, you just, um, yeah, you just do it. I mean, that's kind of one of those things. Like I don't really sit down and write. I kind of just have notes everywhere. And then I try to do sets as much as I can. And remember it, it helps me with my memory, which has actually helped a lot as I've gotten older. Hopefully this will help me uh, later in life. My family has a lot of dementia and stuff like that. Yeah. And so hopefully this will ensure that I try to keep some of my brain. Um, it, I'm working against uh, these hereditary factors. What are your thoughts on a lot of big comedians, you know, that are not writing their own material? Um, and I'm not going to name specifics. I think you probably know some people that, you know, they're doing theaters and they're not really putting yeah. in the groundwork. You know, like guys, you know, I respect Kevin Hart because. Because Kevin Hart does, I know he has this friend who actually he writes with, but Kevin mm-hmm. goes and does the clubs and starts working smaller rooms before he does these theaters. Yeah. But so there's other bigger comedians out there who really don't write their their stand up. But then all of a sudden they'll pay the writers to basically say at the end of their special, hey, written by their. But wait, wait, what? sorry, me not being a, a comedian, is that a bad thing? Because I feel like there's a lot of writers for TV shows and music and all that. Is that is that negative in the comedy world? No, I don't think so. I think it depends. I think that, you know, uh, it's like it's a great thing if you can have somebody that can write from your perspective. For me, it's just kind of like I would definitely love to have people to write with. But in in a sense, it's very hard to because I don't have people who sort of understand what I'm what I'm doing or where I'm coming from. But um, certainly I think it doesn't really matter, you know, because you're the one out there performing it. And at a certain level, you're just so busy. You can't have that luxury of going out to doing five or six sets a night, like in New York city or, um, you know, going on the road, 
you know, you have this like special, you've got to put it together really fast. I mean, everybody understands that. Is it hard to be feel like it's funny? Like the illusion though. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it hard to be funny this day and age? Because there's so many restrictions. There's so many boundaries. Everyone gets upset with everything that I feel like comedy should get the pass, but then we see people not get the pass in comedy. Is it, is it tough to write material this day and age? It makes you more thoughtful. It makes you more uh, aware of what is going to be said and how it will be perceived in, um, say, 20, 10, 20 years. I mean, things that are funny in 2012. Now, it is the year 2012 where somebody, everybody, putting out problematic material at some point or another or tweets or whatever, it's not looked in the same, in the same way now. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how it will be perceived later. But um, I think it's just... It, what it is, is society trying to recalibrate itself in that we realize we have lived in a racist, homophobic, sexist, classist, ageist, all sorts of biased society. And we're trying to uh, reconcile that with our present day values. And I, I appreciate that. So I think it's just um, about being thoughtful. Um, I always appreciate the funny things though so as long as it's funny i think it's great mm-hmm. yeah you don't I get offended you. Do you, or, well, let me ask you do you get offended by when stand comedians go out there and they make a joke and obviously i think we have a good voice or kind of know like their intention their intention is trying to be funny are you mm-hmm. easily do you get easily offended no i grew up in an era where it was all jokes about asian drivers so like when you're a comedian in the 80s like you're always going to do an asian driver joke it's a really hard thing to kind of get offended after being pummeled with that for so long so i don't even i don't know i i think like i appreciate anybody who's trying to be a comic um, above whatever they're saying. I may not sort of laugh at certain things, but mm-hmm. I'm not somebody who's easily offended by anything. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. What is, you know, what is it like doing stand-up comedy today compared to was years ago when you started doing it? How is the compare? How is it compared to each other? I think it's like now we have more of a cohesive society in that if you want to do really topical material that's things that are happening the same day, you can, because everybody is sort of coming from the same place of knowing what's going on. So you can actually uh, talk about things with everybody sort of understanding because of social media and the way that we take in news, there's so much of a uh, cohesive understanding of subject matter that you don't have to do as many setups. So that's convenient. Um, now I think it's, it's interesting how comedy has become very combative and people are attacking comics, which is very, it's, it's very interesting. I'm like, wow, that's, that's new. Rarely would that ever happen. I don't think it's ever happened. I mean, it's never happened to me physically, yeah. um, but that now it's more commonplace. That's kind of, uh, that, that that's very new. So you talked about being like when you were young doing like sex phone operator. How did, when you were like 15, how does that come about? Oh, it's because I wanted to do jobs that would allow me to have uh, the freedom to like stop everything and go and do uh, stand up comedy on the road. Or um, so it was like picking up as many jobs as I could wherever I could. And that job was interesting because uh, it was um, this bank of 
phones and women were talking on the phone. And then I got, uh, I got elevated. I got promoted uh, for this thing called Hot Girls USA, where you were talking in a booth and you were doing English lessons through porn. Um, so that was, it was very simple sentence structure, but it was all about, you know, sex. And um, this noun verb, you know, whatever. It was very easy, but it was also like this <laughs> paid more and it was fast. So that was one of the jobs that I did. So when when these calls come in, just because I don't know much about, obviously things have changed so much, it was the phone just constantly ringing and then like someone would pick it up or like, was there like a high uh, time and they had to have a ton of women in there grabbing phones? Like I'm just so curious. Yeah, that was in the bank of phones. But then we were, my friend and I, who got these other, these Hot Girls USA jobs, we were at the end of the hallway in a recording booth. So we didn't actually have to answer the phones, but our fo- our messages would be played okay. and um, later. So we didn't actually have to talk to anybody. So, so I think that's how they skirted around child labor laws, even though it's totally illegal anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> it, there was something about the fact that we weren't actually talking to people, which is really hard to do because you have to keep them on the phone mm-hmm. for, to get paid. Yeah. So, um, after they nut, it's like it's really hard to keep on the phone. But uh, fortunately, I like we don't want to snuggle. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, they just hang up, and then you're done charging them. So it was so much easier to actually do it from a recording booth, and you didn't have to talk to anybody. That's so funny. Yeah. How hard is it to sell a show to a network? Um, it's really hard to sell a show to a network. I think. I mean, it depends. I think everybody's experience is different. Um. For me, uh, I've done it a few times and it's really hard because you, uh, well, it, it's not hard. It's more um, settling on what you're going to do. Um, usually to forge the relationship is easy. So you, if you have some entity that you would like to work with, um, that usually works out fine. But it's more uh, fine tuning the product or what it's going to be and getting everybody to agree on that and sign off on that. That's where it becomes tricky. And um, when I was doing my first show, All American Girl, which was in 1994, it was very challenging because you had a Ronstein nightclub comedian coming into uh, the realm of 8 p.m. family television. And at that time, we only had three networks and Fox had just started and Married with Children was incredibly controversial at the time. So it was like a really different world of television. So you had to sort of negotiate a lot to get through. Um, And then later, you know, uh, later shows uh, have been just, it's always a challenge to get the network to sign off on something. But it's easy to make that initial contact and like, we're going to do this, but it's hard to get through to the very end. So looking back now, because obviously hindsight's 2020, what what do you think would have helped all american girls succeed more is it the time slot like you just mentioned is it give it two years later and it would have been on fox like i'm just curious what you think would have been the that catalyst to keep that show on i don't know i think there's a couple of things um it uh was historically unfortunate because we appeared the same year as the L.A. uprising when the last time Koreans had seen themselves were on their rooftops with shotguns during these, you know, big uh, Rodney King protests. 
So it was very uh, challenging for them to watch themselves. And I was not particularly their spokesperson that they had elected for because I was a woman. I was queer. I was a very raunchy comedian. I wasn't college educated. I wasn't coming from a place of sort of like understanding the nuances of Korean culture. I knew Korean American culture, but not Korean culture in America. So there was a lot of things that we didn't get support from in that way from the Korean community because of the historical context of it, which I didn't realize until much later. But I think that uh, ultimately we should have stayed on the air. I mean, there was just no reason why it didn't go. I think it was just so many confusing elements of television as well, because we premiered the same season as Friends, which was really the first show to show people who were in their 20s who are not um, having children and not being children. So it was a, a new kind of adulthood that we were looking to understand. And uh, as television viewers, we sort of forget that, you know, but this was like a new idea. So there was a lot of things that could have happened. But ultimately, I, I'm glad the way that things played out because it helped me be, be a better stand-up comedian, which I actually really love now. So you've done, obviously, TV. You've done movies. I have to ask you about one of my favorite movies, which was Face Off. I oh, mean, yeah. you you had a role in Face Off. I got to know, what was it like acting or being in a movie with John Travolta? Okay, that had the best catering. And yeah? <laughs> that had the best catering of any place I've ever been. <laughs> you had... Um, lobster tails and and ribeyes for lunch um i would go in and i i would eat lunch with john in his trailer and we would eat like he would have a beef wellington and a nine inch boysenberry pie eaten with a fork straight to the head not even sliced <laughs> so this kind of kingly behavior was just like so it was so incredible you know you had um at one point, they explode. They explode a Cessna, a real plane. They blew up a real plane. It's not CGI. It's before CGI. They actually exploded the plane in Victorville. So we, uh, everything but the kitchen sink is in that movie. You know, it's it's so packed with um, so many things. And uh, yeah, and I've what, never what, seen what, such grand. What was what was John like? Because again, he's also one of those kind of mysterious kind of actors that are so famous and have done so many roles. And I'm like, what's he like when the cameras go off and he's just eating beef Wellington with you in, in the, in the trailer? He's a modern day King. I mean, he is a King. There is no, uh, the only other person that is similar in stature and charisma and um, personality is Chow Yun Fat who is a legendary Hong Kong star, many um, John Woo films he's a star of, and he has that same kind of quality. Um, very few people I've ever met have that. Um, not even real kings, but John Travolta is is quite a, a king and very much in charge of everything that's happening. So uh, I I really love that. You know, and it, it, it's funny because if you're in the court of John Travolta, he sort of, you, he plays with that. You know, and so every film that he makes, he sort of brings along the same kinds of like all of this, uh, like the same like 80s and same crew a lot of times. So that's really 
it's a family. They've kind of come come up together. What, what about what about Nick Cage then? I mean, if we're talking face off, you got John Travolta on one side, you got Nick Cage on the other. Two of the greatest actors of our time, and you get to be in a movie with both of them. What's Nick Cage like? He's in character the whole time. So in Face Off, he was so mean for half of it, and then so nice for the other half because <laughs> he's Caster for one half and Pollux for the other half. Yep. So he's in character the whole time and uh, it is so weird <laughs> you don't know what you're gonna get because you're but then you realize oh i'm with the character so um you know there's there's just that feeling of like you're you're like what is what's going on but then you realize after a while you're oh i'm with the character i'm actually not with the person so that's why he's such a great actor is because he's that the whole time. How many auditions did you have to go to to get that role? Um, so many. I mean, I've been auditioned. I've I auditioned for Wayne's World. I auditioned for Clueless. I auditioned for Jurassic Park. Um, with the book, not even a script. I've auditioned for. You have to audition so much. It's such a big part of what uh is Hollywood is auditioning. It's mostly that. But the, what what made you land that role? Like, I, I mean, um, doing all like these huge classic movies. That clearly you didn't get, but how did yeah. you land this one, which is huge? Oh, um, John Woo likes likes my work, and mm-hmm. um, John Woo actually had um, planned to cast me in it, um, regardless of what the audition would have been like. He sort of like was, oh, this is gonna, you know, that that's how it's gonna be. Like he he really wanted to have me in the movie anyway, so it sort of wouldn't have mattered, but he had decided, so that was good. Do you think this industry, the entertainment industry, what are your thoughts on it? Does it suck? Do some days you feel like, man, why did I even get myself into it? Because it's so difficult. It's such a challenge. It's such a, such a hustle. Like here you are more than 25 years in and you're still hustling just like you were in the early 90s. It, like what, what, is your, what is your thoughts on the industry? I love it. I mean, I think that there are certain parts of it that are really hustle. hustle like, but I appreciate it because – to me, like, I feel really fortunate to still be in it. And I, I really I love it. And then stand up comedy to me is such a joy. And I love performing and it's something that I will always do. And um, it's just given me a lot in my life. And I appreciate a lot. So I don't think that that area of it is as much of a hustle. I think uh, the rest of it is, is challenging, but I appreciate the challenge. And I always love it. I think... Um, I, I about all the people that were so talented who just didn't like any of the um, the dailiness of the work and auditioning and just didn't want to do it. So, you know, it's like we all know these people who are so talented who just didn't care for it. So I think what what really makes sense in Hollywood essentially is um, that tenacity and the love of hustling, um, the love of uh, being challenged. I think that's what's really remarkable. The people that stay around are the people who just really enjoy that. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a, like you said, it's not an easy industry, but what advice do you give to people who are dealing with managers and agents out there, picking the right person to help take your career to the next level? I think it's just about trusting your instincts and also knowing that, um, it's really important to read the fine print on everything and to mm-hmm. read contracts before you sign and to really understand what you're getting yourself into. 
um, because stardom and fame come really quickly when you can't even picture it. Like we never know what's going to happen. That's one of the great things about this industry is that you just don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, you just don't know who's going to be sort of like the next big thing. And it could be you. It most likely will be if you stay with it. So it's just to be aware of that and that the possibility is always looming and to not lose hope, but also to be cautious because there are people who see that and know that that possibility is in, in you. And so many people that I uh, worked with in the past have gone from total obscurity to massive fame. And it seems like it's in the blink of an eye, but it's a lifetime of work. And they signed away rights that they shouldn't have because they didn't believe that they were so excited that somebody believed in them that they, they thought, oh, well, you know, never going to happen. But, you know, it really does happen. I think of that with Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey, listen, a great comedian, has had a great career. But in the past, I don't know, couple years, I mean, his career just took off, like, later in his career. Like, he's a superstar. He's always a successful comedian. Yeah. He's done great acting work. He had his own sitcom. But now, at the, you know, I don't want to say the end of his career, later in life, I would say, he's just this massive star hosting, you know, primetime TV shows, to mm-hmm. doing so much hosting gigs. He's insane. I know you had a relationship with him. Is it yeah. crazy to see him or he actually inspiring to see what he's done later in his career? Totally inspiring. And totally great, you know, and and really um, a unique path, all of the things that he's done. And part of it is because of his own genius in reinvention, you know, whether it's being on the radio, whether it's doing sort of relationship advice, whether it's um, hosting different kinds of shows, a game show host, you know, all sorts of different things, these aspects, a judge, you know, it's really cool. So that's what's great about being a comedian, too, is that you have real longevity. And then as you get older, you have a lot of gravity, which gives you a lot of um, ability to do things that, you know, whether it's sitting on the, you know, as a judge or hosting things that people trust you. And that's really important. So you, you uh, had a, uh, a relationship with one of the most fascinating people in the industry, Quentin Tarantino. I got it all. What was the one thing you took away from that relationship? Because I feel like he is he is on another level when it comes to movies and intelligence and all these kinds of things. What what do you what did you walk away from that relationship feeling like that was that was what I learned? Well, we we both have a lifelong love of cinema and it goes from low bright brow to high brow. You know, that there is no uh nothing too uh, quirky and low budget. There's nothing so like highfalutin that we can't get all over. And my, my favorite thing was when he um, bought out the inventory of the video store he used to work at, Video Archives. So we had 8,000 movies to watch. And um, he had a uh, player, uh, a, a, tele- a huge television that letterboxed everything. So we would even watch like Family Ties in 16 by 9. everything was like letterboxed nothing was too good to be letterboxed you know and that was really funny and you know we really appreciate uh cinema and we appreciate sort of a a kind of um like i guess i guess it is sort of luddite point of view although he doesn't have a phone i like having a smartphone he does not have a phone or he doesn't use a computer really um, 
which there's a couple of guys like that in, in my life who are totally geniuses, but they just don't want to, they don't fuck with technology, which is totally cool. Like he'll write his scripts with pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. We can erase things. Pretty great. <laughs> what was there? Was there a movie that you guys put on that you were surprised he liked that you were like, Oh, I, I wouldn't think Quentin Tarantino liked this movie, but he really did. We we sat through Showgirls twice in the theater. <laughs> so we watched Showgirls and then was over and then we're like, should we watch it again? And like, yeah. So we just sat through two sittings, two two showings of it. It was like a seven o'clock and like a ten o'clock. And it was on uh Vermont. So it was at that that Los Feliz Theater. And I, I think, love that. That's hilarious. Yeah. We were with Scott Thompson, who I think left midway through the second showing. But uh, we had to watch it um, again. It was just so it was just so fun. And, you know, in the real it was like it's actually kind of like a 70s exploitation movie, but redone in the 90s with very big budget. And so we just were like screaming and laughing throughout the whole thing. I love it. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, So we're going to do a little bit of a speed round. You know, I just want to see what's the first thing that comes to your mind. So. Mm -hmm. Let's start with this. The nicest celebrity in Hollywood. Henry Winkler. Uh, All right. Yeah, I agree. Cosign. Yeah, the best. Easiest. How best. about the funniest person? Oh, gosh. I feel like it's like going to be um, Nick Kroll. He's just so silly and funny. I think Ike Barinholtz, too, are, is really funny. But this, Nick Kroll is just so silly and ridiculous and funny. And I, I adore him. Worst celebrity encounter. We're oh, uh, one time I was at a party and um, I love him by the way, but uh, Harrison Ford spilled three glasses of wine on me. All three. <laughs> he was holding three glasses. He should be able to hold three glasses at once. He is Han Solo and Indiana Jones, but he was holding and, and then he like he he spilled all three of red wine all over me. <laughs> so. That was the worst. He was very apologetic. And then he got like a napkin, but he didn't want to touch. You know, he was like, uh, uh. And then he just, just stood there. It was like <laughs> so freaked out. <laughs> that was the worst. I felt really bad, but I was kind of honored. But it was scary. I, I By all means, Harrison Ford dumped wine all over me. That's awesome. That's yeah. a good memory to g- g- walk away with. Okay. Who's the best looking person in real life? Like there's people that they look beautiful on camera. But then when you see them in person, it may not be what you have in mind. And then there's people that walk in front of you like, holy shit, this person is unbelievable. Like shockingly beautiful. I think probably um, Vanessa Williams. It's kind of like you almost hold your breath. Like she's like such a such a goddess. Uh, like it's like uh, you, you almost can't breathe because she's so um, just beautiful, just stunning. Um I've never she, seen in person. Adam, have you? Yeah, she's got like this, you know, obviously her skin tone and her eyes. It's a very, uh, it just stands out. She's just got a great and, skin tone and she's got really And enduring, skin. like, because she's, you know, in her, probably like her late, like mid to late 50s, like me. So she's very, but she just has this energy. It's just like, she's, it, she's absolutely exquisite. The best city to perform in? I think New York City. Because you have uh, everybody there. Everybody from anywhere is there. 
and it's just always such a party. So I, I love New York City. What about the worst city to do stand up in? Oh, I, I mean, I hear LA is pretty bad. I like LA. I like LA a lot. I wouldn't say there's any worst city because sometimes you go places. Oh, Umea, Sweden is weird because <laughs> um, they. I did a show there and they did not laugh at once. And uh, but at the end, they all stood up and sang the national anthem, and then they gave me a knife. So I was like, "This is so Midsommar. Like it's like the most Midsommar weird kind of like comedy show." But it was really when you go that far away, it's really it's special. But it wasn't the worst, but it was weird. Best restaurant in L.A. Ooh. Mm. I, you know what? I love Laurie's. I know that's weird, but I do love Laurie's. I also, um, I love, uh, uh, any, any K barbecue, any K parks, parks, barbecue parks, I think is the best. If you like Korean barbecue parks is probably the best. Um, but uh, anything in Koreatown, I mean, I love all of the restaurants there, but I also love a good, like, 1930s spinning salad on a cracked ice thing, you know, that they make by your table. I think it's really fancy and fun. All right. So my last question is, how hard is it to teach a cat sign language? Um, it's very, um, it's really rewarding. So for but people it, that don't know, you have a deaf cat. I have a deaf cat, and she is the love of my life. I have a lot of animals, but she's really special. And so I've te taught her a little bit of sign language of how to, like, come to me and um, to when to wake up. So her, I turn the lights on and off, and she can feel the vibration of the light or the white light switch in the wall or something, and she'll wake up. And uh, it's really rewarding. She's really and, special. And what's her name? Sacra Cur Saudade, which uh, means the sacred heart of the unnameable beauty of longing. How did you come up with that name? Uh, French, uh, Portuguese, and um, I never say it because uh, she can't hear me. But <laughs> I, I, I have to write it down everywhere someone, you know, to remember it. <laughs> and then I saw her jump up at one point. Is she a hairless cat? Well, she has some hair on her, uh, like her hips and her tail and a little bit of hair around her neck. But for the most part, she's hairless. Yes. I mean, come on. God didn't want to give her hearing or hair. What the heck, man? I mean, she's a very special baby. <laughs> That's awesome. Very, very cool. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been just a real fun talk. Where can people find you? I know that obviously you can, they can head over to your Instagram, Margaret underscore Cho, but do you have any shows coming up? Anything that they can, we can push people to, to yeah. if they see you in person? I'm all over the place and I'm still on tour um, out there and people can find me at margaretcho.com at uh, at margaret show on twitter and the margaret show on tiktok where you'll see all of my animals and my carnivorous bog and my cacti and um all i have 28 bird feeders so you'll see all my stuff i want i just want to come hang out in your little garden of 
Venus fly traps just to see the and just release flies and say, let's do this plan. They, do your job. They eat bugs on my TikTok. So you can see the, the bugs <laughs> getting eaten. It's really exciting. I love it. Well, Margaret, thank you honestly so much for for stopping by joining us. I know we've had some crazy audio issues today, but you were the best just powering through with us. I appreciate that. Of course. Thank you. Margaret was uh She's had a long, good career. Dude, I, you know what I didn't realize? Like, she has been around the biggest people in the entertainment industry. She's had this amazing life. TV shows, movies. I mean, would you date Quentin freaking Tarantino? Like, the, the stories that she must have that we need to, like, get a beer in her and really, like, get those those stories out. I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear what Quentin's really like. I, it's funny because I chickened out because I did want to ask if Quentin really is a foot fetish guy, but I was like, it's <laughs> so nice. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get it weird. It would be like, so when you were watching these movies, did he massage your feet? <laughs> yeah. I just, I was very curious about it. But Quentin Tarantino is like such a movie guy. It's got to be a fun relationship. I mean, you're just watching movies Dude, all day. The, is... the, the fact that he watched Showgirls twice, though, I, come on. I kind of love that. I watched it a lot more than twice. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that movie came out. I was watching that on repeat. Great movie. See Jesse Spano naked. I'll take it. But, guys, thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe. Leave a review. It's the best thing to do to support this. It's um, go on iTunes. Go all the way to the – go to the Hollywood Raw podcast. Go all the way to the bottom. You put in five stars. Say a few kind words. If you do that or actually read your review live on air, it's the best thing to do to support this. We don't have a Patreon. We don't ask you for anything else. Besides that, it takes two seconds. It's so easy. Um, check us out. We're on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, right on all, you know, we got some really cool content. We got a video portion of this podcast on YouTube. Follow Dax Holt, D-A-X-H-O-L-T. Follow me, Adam Glynn, G-L-Y-N. We'll see you guys next week. A Huda Media Production.